Welcome once again aboard Beef Station. Join us as we hurtle through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. Andrew. How you doing, man? Yeah, good. What's been going on? Oh, it's been a good week. There's been loads of awards that have been announced this week. I thought mm. it'd be fun to um, go through and start with those mm. as a way of an introduction this week. Because uh, I think we're all trying to work out what's going to be happening with them big awards leading up at the end of January. And so yeah. we've got the Golden Globes and all sorts of other things that have just been announced. The Golden Globes are the big ones recently that have been announcing the nominees and now the winners last week. Um, and I thought it might be interesting to go through and see what's won right. motion, best motion picture and best actor and that kind of thing. If I read you the nominees, have you seen who's won? I have not for seen any, any results. Right. Wow, okay, right. So um, <clears> the way <throat> that the Golden Globes actually splits up their best picture, they have a best picture category for comedy or musical. Right. And then they have a best picture category for, for like drama. drama. Right. And so they have two best picture winners every year. Mm. Um, the nominees for most, and famously, the most, the comedy or musical definition and the drama definitions are a bit strange. Like, for example, um, oh, what, what year was it? Don't know, man. What year is it? <laughs> um, what year was it? So in 2015, for example, uh, The Revenant won for best drama, mm. and best comedy or musical went to The Martian. Really? Yeah, which isn't a comedy or a musical. I mean, The Martian was pretty funny. Like, I get how you could... But it's it's not a comedy. I feel like, like that's really so shitting on musicals. I've actually got a list of a few previous uh, winners so that we could go through a bit later. Right. Um, and you go through and you're like, well, is that just a drama with jokes in? So, like, yeah. is it like, oh, if the romance... At what point is it a is, is it really... Is the other one just really, like, best romance slash sad story? <laughs> like, it's a bit weird, but whatever. Um, nominees... Yeah, best uh, movie that wasn't funny. <laughs> literally. Uh, so, best... And I think good drama is going to have a bit of a mix of everything. Yeah, so it seems sh- like it'll be a... Whatever. Doesn't uh, have to, but often does. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, best comedy or musical nominees this year were Crazy Rich Asians, mm. The Favourite, Mary Poppins Returns, which is a musical. Is uh, best comedy or musical? Yeah. Vice and The Green Book. Okay. Wait. Yeah? Let me guess. I reckon that Green Book won. Yeah, it's Green Book. Right. But, like, I don't even know. Is that a musical? Is that a comedy? No, it seems comedy. like a weird... Okay, I, think it's f- I think it's funny. Okay. Right. But I don't know <laughs> yeah. if it's... Uh, same deal. I-, I would classify that as yeah. a drama. Well, I'm keen to see it. So I'm not... I'm bad, not I'm, I'll find out later. But, like, right. it seems like... I, I mean, I know it's about, the like... trailer was Racial funny. prejudice. Okay, yeah. right. Okay, fine. Um, and then the drama ones, I'm race through. The best drama Golden Globe nominees were A Star Is Born, mm. If Beale Street Could Talk, Black Klansman, Black Panther, and Bohemian Rhapsody. And the winner was Bohemian Rhapsody. Fuck, really? The best drama. Jesus, no. But there's also comedy or musical there. Like, is be- it's like if, <laughs> yeah. if comedy or musical if that's films not are a just... not fucking musical, yeah. what is? Well, like, it, it's like not really musical, but like if co- if there are dramatic movies winning for comedy or musical because they have jokes in, surely that's a dramatic movie I mean, yeah, with just songs swap, just in. Just swap those two categories, yeah. right? Yeah. Whatever. So that was the, the winner. <laughs> and then um, Remy Malek won. But also it should have been Beale Street, right? That's what... I haven't uh, seen Apparently it. it was great. I haven't seen it. Whatever. But yeah, maybe. And then Remy Malek won for... Uh, best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama. See, that I drama. can get behind. He was fantastic. He was good. Um, and then best actor in a comedy or musical was won by Christian Bale. In Vice. Yeah. Right. Uh, Glenn Close won for best actress in a motion drama for The Wife, which I haven't seen. No. And then uh, Olivia Colman won for The Favourite for best actress She's in so comedy good. or drama. Excellent. So those are the Golden Globes. There's a whole bunch of other awards here that I think it would be tedious to go through. Right. Um, Alfonso Cuaron uh, won for Roma. 
for best, best director. Foreign. Oh, best director. Best screen. Oh, yeah, I saw Best that. screenplay was the Green Book. Best mm. animated film, Golden Globe, went to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Fuck, yeah. Which is exciting. Hell yeah. Roma also won for best foreign language film. And there's a whole bunch of other television best awards here as well. director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Best film where you got to read in it. Um, uh, people say like, oh, who gives a fuck about the Golden Globes? And then a lot of people say, oh, the Golden Globes are a good indicator of who's going to win best picture for the Oscars right. though, isn't it? So I thought, here we go. Is let's, it? Let's go to the weatherman. So I've gone back and I've listed the past 10 years worth of best picture winners for the Golden Globes and the Oscars. And just to see like which ones actually match up. Right. So I've got all the best picture winners listed here on my little Excel spreadsheet from 2008 to 2018. Right. Obviously, we don't know what the Oscars one is yet. But you mm. can see here, the ones I've highlighted in green. <laughs> you can see here, listeners. Dear listeners. <laughs> um, out of the last 10 years... Um, obviously, the, the odds are better because Golden Globes has two best picture winners. I'm going to not year. look at what you're saying, so you have to describe it to me. Okay, fine. The Golden Globes, I, I was trying to work out how many years are there where the best, best picture winner for the Oscars and the Golden also, Globes was the same. Right. In the last 10 years, um, there has only been three drama movies mm. where they were given the Golden Globe drama and best, the picture, best picture and also won the Oscar for best picture. Right. Um, in the last 10 years, there's only been one musical slash comedy classified movie La La that won Best Picture, and it was The Artist um, oh, okay. in 2011. Right. No, fam- famously, La La Land didn't win the Oscar. It was Moonlight. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, oh, shit. Um, I think that's interesting. In the last 10 years, you've got a very small fraction of dramatic films or comedy films that actually do go on to win the Oscar for Best Picture. Right. So, I don't necessarily know whether it is an interesting... Or an accurate pick, yeah. So, for example, um, so to whiz through the dramas, um, twenty seventeen Golden Globe went to three billboards, and Oscars was The Shape of Water. Right. Twenty fifteen, uh, The Revenant and Spotlight was Golden Globes and Oscars. Mm. Um, in twenty fourteen, the Golden Globe for drama went to Boyhood, and the Oscar went to Birdman. Twenty thirteen, The Globe went to Twelve Years a Slave. Um, oh, it's another one and I missed. So I missed Oscar. a highlight. Right? No. Okay. Fine. So, my, my statistical analysis skills are worthless. There's another drama there in 2013. Point is... Folks, it's just gone up by 10%. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 20, 2009, the Golden Globe Best Picture for Best Drama went to Avatar. Fuck. And the Oscars picked The Hurt Locker. <laughs> I know which one I would have gone with. <laughs> Which I think shows... So, there are some interesting p- picks there. I thought, oh, the, the Golden Globe drama is actually, I think, the better film. Um like The Revenant versus Spotlight, for example. They, I like The they, Revenant they a lot better. They don't nail it every time. Yeah, they don't nail it every time. <laughs> like, they picked fucking, um, yeah, Avatar in 2009. So, fuck that. Um, and so, all the, out of all the nominees... <laughs> Can we go back and see if they picked Pocahontas the year that came out? <laughs> <laughs> and so, out of all the Golden Globe <laughs> nominees for this year, between all the comedy and dramas put together, it's more right. likely one of the dra- dramatic ones would win. And out of the dramatic ones... I think that you'd have to probably either pick Black Klansman or if Beale Street could talk, because that's apparently good. Black Klansman won't win. Maybe I, Green I Book think. will win. Green Book or if Beale Street could talk, I would say, is yeah. are the most likely ones there. I hope Vice wins. That'd be cool. I mean, something that I someone... I just don't think it's best picture worthy. Yeah. Well, something that opinion. someone pointed out to me is that often in the last 10 years, films that are kind of meta in the way that they talk about film... And films that are kind of about Hollywood often get picked. Right. So, like, La La Land did very well um, for the Golden Globes. Uh, the Artist is a film about films. Right. You've got Argo, which is a film about, like, Hollywood saving hostages from yeah, terrorists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the point is, in the last few years, if there's been a film that's kind of about films, 
it seems to do very well in the awards. I wonder, though, if that's because people who have the expertise to make films about films have likely been in the film industry for a longer time. and well, It's also because like... people that are filmmakers vote on this shit. So, like... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but in the same way, it's very liberal, I imagine, kinds of people that vote on this kind of thing. Mm. So, I could, I could very easily a... see Vice winning. They need to have, like, a best... Like, a crowd vote thing. Yeah. I mean, they, they literally were gonna do like best popcorn Oscar and we we poo-pooed it weeks ago is that what that was that just explicitly like I don't think it was gonna be a people's choice thing but it was gonna be like a popular kind of film oh no award. see that's bullshit no I'm talking about popular vote right, I, okay. I want an Oscar for, for <laughs> I want a democratic process to elect best picture well, then the, the Rick Astley video clip's gonna win every year well man. yeah but yeah, that, within trusted. like the scope of nominate <laughs> yeah. it obviously has to be yeah. from the best picture nominations yeah. but I'd be interested to see how often that lines up. Yeah, right. So that's that's my little analysis of the Golden Globes awards that have happened in the last few years. I think it's interesting that you know there's only been sort of three or four best pictures that have lined up between the Golden Globes yeah, right. and the dramas over the last ten years. I have never heard anyone say that the Golden Globes is a good indication for the Oscars predictions, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I thought it was an interesting thing. Yeah, it's cool. Golden Globes. It's you know, it's publicized a lot on the internet. Right. The Oscars have got a bit more prestige. And I thought, oh, how much do these actually match up? Mm. And it turns out. Not enough that I would think it's very significant. So that's our little wrap-up of awards recently, unless you've got any other little news uh, here. Well, I do, because I wanted to start covering the nominations for uh, film's biggest Night of Nights. I oh, think. is that out? The big awards. Yep. Oh, shit. Yep. I've been looking forward to this for ages. This yep. is um, is this so, so the Academy Awards nominations are out? No. Obviously, I'm talking about the BAFTAs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, right. <laughs> right, okay, fine. So, Listen, I'll see you in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, obviously, so, so th- this article I'm looking at on Empire Online says that uh, apparently some of the Golden Globes nominations have been a bit oddly received, so people have been a bit thrown off. Yeah, I, think- I, saw, I saw an article here before you go on that was saying that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is the worst critically worst performing movie acclaimed that's, yeah. movie that's won a Golden Globe Best Picture in like 20 years. I think that's... Ac- like it's it's got 66% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Yeah, I think it's bullshit. <laughs> like yeah. maybe, maybe it's a massive achievement cinematically in production. It's not the um, best picture. Was it the best end product to receive? No. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Um, so uh, the BAFTA nominations are out and yeah. uh, apparently Yorgos Lanthimos is the favourite which we are yet to see but we'll... Do so shortly. I've heard it's not as fucking crazy as the last one. Yeah, so maybe, well, I'll, maybe I won't mind it's it. It's cleaned up and it's leading the way with nominations in 12 categories, yeah. uh, including Best Film, uh, Best British Film, Director, and Leading Actress. Yeah, well, Olivia Colman well like won the Golden Globe for Supporting best Actress and stuff. Yeah, so she might, well. she might take it out in this too, which is, which is awesome. <laughs> she gave a really, cr- really cute like, speech <laughs> when she uh, went up to accept her award and was like, oh, thank you for the sandwiches. And, like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> really lovely. Cute. The most British award She's ever. so sweet. Um, so the BAFTAs for Best Film nominees are Black Klansman, The yep. Favourite, yep. Green Book, Roma, and A Star is Born. So there's pretty, Ooh, Roma's pretty heavy in overlap there. Yeah. Um, so as we said, maybe yeah, do they know that they don't speak English in Roma? <laughs> why would they? Why, why would they offer it a Best Picture nomination? Yeah, I don't know. Don't know <laughs> um, so obviously, I, I think that's probably between the favorite and Green Book. Um, oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. The don't fa- know. The, surely the favorites. The, the, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is a fucking weirdo. So they've also got this category of outstanding British film, and they must have some weird categories going on there because Bohemian Rhapsody is there, and I think that was fairly American produced. Maybe it was quite British, but also the favorite. So it's a British movie about a British 
Band and I didn't think it was produced in Britain, but maybe it was. Dinner. Anyway, so there's some interesting categories there. All right. Uh, director, we've got uh, Spike Lee, Black Landsman, yeah. uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, the favorite, Alfonso Cuaron, Roma, Bradley yeah. Cooper, Star is Born. Right so yeah. almost exactly the same categories, but uh, Pavel Pavlikowski with Cold War Boo. is also in there. I thought it was fine, but not and best And he won Cannes Film Festival's Best Director. Right. No, I mean, you know, in terms of director, maybe, sure. Maybe, but yeah, okay. Uh, leading actress, there's a fair bit. Yeah, you got Olivia Coleman. Um, there's also Viola Davis from Widows. Lady right. Gaga is in there from Star is Born. <laughs> Glenn Close in The Wife, which, yeah, I didn't see. And Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, leading actor, we got Brad Cooper in Star is Born. Christian Bale in Vice. Remy Malik, yeah. uh, Steve Coogan from Stan and Ollie. And Viggo Mortensen from Green Book. Um, so, Viggo yeah, Mortensen's freaking amazing. Yeah, and I guess the last category I, I kind of wanted to look at was original screenplay. So we had right. Cold War, The Favourite, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. So there's a lot I'd of... I love Vice to win for there's that. There's such a lot of overlap here yeah. um, in terms of the categories. Yeah. Uh, there's only three nominations for animated <laughs> film, but it's Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, and Spider-Man. So, yeah. <laughs> the category, the official category for foreign film is film not in the English language. <laughs> is it actually? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, yeah. It's the most British shit I've ever heard. Cold War and Roma in there. Oh, Shoplifters as well, that Japanese film that we haven't gotten around to seeing yet. I've heard that's good, and we say that every week, so I think we've got to, <laughs> got to stop mentioning it until we actually watch it. Mm. Anyway, so there's a bunch of other interesting categories there. There's cinematography and costume, uh, costume design and... Um, uh, bloody original music as well, which I'm I'm interested in seeing, but we won't uh, yeah. we won't just cover the BAFTAs because otherwise we'll be here for a bloody hour. <laughs> so shall we move on? Sure, yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right, what movies did we watch this week? Uh, we watched Eighth Grade, a fantastic comedy drama film written and directed by a comedian. An excellent Bildungsroman. <laughs> Um, yeah, yes. Um, uh, written and directed by comedian Bo Burnham. Yeah. Uh, a lot more dramatic than funny than I was. I mean, you say it's a movie written by a comedian. Like, it's it's a fantastic drama that has funny moments in right. it. Uh, here come Golden Globes. Also, again. Um, that came out in 2017 in America, so it's it's taken its sweet time. Yeah. No, sorry, 2018. It, it came out in 2018 in America, so it's taken its sweet time getting over to Australia. I mean, theoretically, that could have yeah. been 13 days ago. <laughs> And then the other film we watched this week was Vice, which is the new film starring Christian Bale Bale. uh, and directed by Adam McKay. Same bloke. Yeah, written and directed by Adam McKay. Same bloke that did The Big Short a few years ago. This one Mm. is about Vice President Dick Cheney. Mm. Um, And that was another film that was equal parts dramatic and funny and (laughs) kind of depressing. And I, I thought both of them were really good. And it's nice this week that we've got two films that are both written and, you know, written and directed written and directed by a person. Yeah. Which. It's always nice to see when you have like, like a unified kind of vision in a film like that. Right. Yeah. Which? What do you want to start? With? Do you want to start with? Um, Let's start with Vice. Vice. Yeah. Sure. Written, written and directed by Adam McKay. Mm. It's got exactly the same kind of semi-documentary, Tone. semi kind of fourth wall breaking style that The Big Short had. So mm. if you've seen The Big Short, if you haven't seen The Big Short, it's probably more. <laughs> more useful that I explain it. The Big Short was a film about uh, the, the housing bubble financial, financial crisis, crisis yeah. that happened in the early noughties. Um, and it kind of followed the story of different financial traders that had sort of spotted that this might happen and it would bring also, up something... Also based on a true story. Also yeah. based on a true story, obviously. It would bring up something quite complicated and the film would kind of, you know, record scratch stop and it would cut to like... Oh, now we have to explain to you what uh, the housing bubble is. So yeah. here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub drinking champagne, and it went Margot Robbie would like look straight at the camera, 
or you know, someone random be like, "Here's Christopher Walken playing yeah. golf, explaining it to you," and it would do like a fourth wall break and explain concepts of the film to and you. And she'd be like, in a documentary kind of style. Here's what a subprime mortgage is. You know, your yeah. normal mortgage, blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah so for a few minutes. Yeah. And so, but but he knew that. So the the genius bit behind that is that these films that that are based on these kind of events where. Um, even as part of the story, people don't yeah. understand what happened at the time. And that was why... So one of the reasons why the global financial crisis and the housing bubble was so bad yeah. is because the citizens that were involved in that didn't know what was going wrong. And so in order to make a film about that, you have to educate people on what they didn't know at the time. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so the way that he does that in a very clever way is to completely break the script of a film. So he doesn't have... He has like more than direct exposition right where it's not just characters having this conversation it's actually a famous person explaining to you anthony bourdain was another cutaway that they did where he was like preparing um, yeah. stuff in his kitchen and he used a kitchen metaphor straight to the audience that was in the, the big short in the mean? big short yeah. yeah and then it it cuts back and and so it's like now that you understand what a subprime mortgage is we can continue with the scene that we were in. Yeah. You know? Well, something I think, I, I was reading a few articles throughout the week that were sort of looking at this and something I think is really interesting about the way his style, uh, it almost reflect it almost reflects credibility to the way he tells the story. Yeah. So, um, this is perhaps a bit more important or a bit more evident in a film like Vice, which is about a political figure, yeah. whereby when he has these fourth wall breaks and like when a new character comes on screen, he has like the little name and title of them in the bottom corner, like you right. would see in a documentary. Donald like Rumsfeld. it'll be like Donald yeah. Rumsfeld, uh, director of Chief defense, of defense. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Um, Secretary of it almost makes the film feel like a documentary and it lends this air of authenticity to mm. it that means that it's, it's a fictionalized account of the film. It's not a documentary, obviously, no. and it makes jokes and like, for example, Steve Carell plays up the character of Donald Rumsfeld like a cartoon fucking maniac, you know? Yeah, um, sort of. And so, well, he's, oh, yeah, like, he plays know. him up as this crazy fucking man manic guy and you and I don't know because the whole, I mean, Adam McKay acknowledges throughout the film that it's not a story that very many people are familiar with and so yeah. it layers, it, it's it's obviously going to be a biased retelling of the story. No matter how tragic it is, whatever these people did, or no matter how despicable it is or how corrupt they are, it's a biased account of it. Mm. But the way... And something I was very aware of going into it and sort of throughout watching it was the way in which they were showing us the story through all these fourth wall breaks and like, all right, let me just tell you the facts type mm. halting points in the movie where <laughs> fucking Anthony Bourdain will tell you who Dick, where Dick Cheney was born. Right. Like... Um, it yeah. definitely does paint it, paint a lot of these figures in a negative light, and it makes me wonder how the film might have been told differently, what the tone of the film might have been under under a different director's hands. It's very so, well done. A, a few excellent things done. to contextualize it. Yeah, um, just to build upon what you're yeah. saying. So the the film opens with uh, black screen, white writing. Yeah. That says, um, uh, Dick Cheney was president of the United States. Uh, or was vice president of the United <laughs> States under the Bush administration. And basically, I'm paraphrasing, but it says like, um, "This is this is this is based on a true story, based or on it's a true as story. true as we could possibly be, considering he's one of the most secretive leaders the world's ever seen." Right. And so, what it then starts with is a narrated uh, kind of introduction. Okay, so the the narrator at the start of the film is yeah. is not. Uh, introduced to you until a little bit later. Well, it'll, but it'll sort of cut to him every now and then. It'll be like this this random dude in suburbia playing with his kid and like talking to his wife and yeah. like having dinner and so it's like so you, it's like this everyman type you, figure. You you have this narration um, which yeah. is 
which which again lends the film a sort of documentative style because that that's something that we pretty commonly yeah. associate with um, either recountings of personal experiences or an expert speaking on a on an issue or an event, right? Yeah. So Jesse Plemons is is kind of guiding us through a lot of the events that we watched Dick Cheney go through in his early uh, political career. Yeah. And then what happens uh, midway through the film is that he uh, is brought in as an actual character in the story, yeah. in the events that happen. And uh, I think that's really interesting because what it does is it, it blends this barrier between the documentary narration and the characters that are in the story. Yeah. So what happens is you almost have... It's almost like Donald Rumsfeld is turning to the camera and saying, hey... So we knew this at the time, but we didn't know this and we weren't sure how that was going to turn out or whatever. Yeah. Except instead of that, you've still got that that authenticity from the narrator's perspective where like they are a kind of objective observer who's yeah. trying to just kind of fill you in on stuff that you might not know. And I think that's a really interesting way to go about doing it. It really does seem like the film would want to be fucking spot on because it's heavily implying that like every, every single thing that happens in this film is fact. Right. Even, either directly... Or through the way in which it presents itself stylistically. So, something so like was... even like sorry, like even like the narrator, he's just some dude who Adam McKay is like written in to be the narrator of his story throughout the whole thing, if that makes sense. Like you don't yeah. really know who he is for most of the thing. So he's just yeah. this voice that's looking at the camera and like directly telling you facts and, and things. And I thought he was meant to represent just an ordinary American citizen. Well, that's kind of what he is for is. like most of the movie. He, yeah. yeah, he definitely um, is also that. Um, it turns out, and we'll get into like some. Yeah, we'll get into some some of the some of the function of his character yeah. when we get onto spoiling some of the events in the story a little later. Yeah, but um, he he is both in in the same way that he's got a duality between being the narrator and being a character. He also yeah. has this duality between having this um, actual role in the ongoing events of the story and just being an ordinary American citizen who has no power or ability to make any difference in the political machinations, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So there's a really... he's uh, McKay has actually done quite an intelligent thing there by, by um, fusing together two very distinct roles between a documentary film and a fictional film, even though yeah. this is only kind of occupying space, quote-unquote, in the fictional aspect of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've <laughs> found a, a brief article here that talks about People might be criticizing the film a little bit for being slightly inaccurate, or maybe not inaccurate, but obviously just biased in the way it presents facts, yeah. which I kind of agree with. Um, and I mean, for, I mean, it has to be. Obviously, it's going to be. Yeah. No one can tell us a political story that's funny and kind of demonizes this guy, mm. deserved or not, in a way that's not biased. Oh, like I'm going to say fairly deserved. Yeah, but you know what? It, uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is what, what yeah. the criticism I'm making is irrelevant, or whether or not this guy's a piece of shit or not. Right. You know, like um, for example, uh, this says like the film simplifies a lot of political decisions this guy's making as seeming to be founded solely out of malice and his corrupt personal personal ties to the oil industry. Of power or so whatever, he's saying, yeah. for example, like, oh, the war in Iraq the war in Iraq, this article here says like the film makes out that the only reason he did that was because he wanted more power and wanted to make money for his oil buddies. Mm. And it's like, well obviously in an international government, this guy obviously this guy's going to be saying this, but it's like he's like there's a lot more shit going on than that. Yeah, who wrote this article? Because these it's guys on, are often fucking. It's on this website bustle. called Bustle. It's just the first one I found, but I I'm just trying to Johnny find. Johnny Brayson is. Yeah, no, I don't know. Because the other um, thing that that I'm, I'm yeah. instantly suspicious of with these types of things is like who's writing this article? You know, like who's who's saying like who who's is this guy? 
who does this person and I mean this in a generic yeah. way like when you're reading criticism of, of a film like this that's doing such that's taking such a strong stance on such a contentious political issue yeah it's very important to identify who the source of information is yeah. before you ascribe any kind of value to them right. because okay. this guy could so be this, a right wing think tank yeah, I agree right so this um, so, so this that quote came from a Slate article right um, where it was criticising the film for simplifying political decisions that Dick Cheney had made made slightly. Yeah, there's Slate, a Washington, Slate's not the best. There's a Washington Times article here that interviewed um, a bloke who worked for President Bush at the time right. um, and said, oh, like, oh, the film makes out that like Dick Cheney's ruling the whole fucking roost and he's the one that's really in charge. And he says... Um, uh, quote, nothing could be further from the truth. The president indeed relied on the VP for advice, but no but no more so than he relied on the Secretary of State or the White House Chief of Staff or any other key figures inside the West that Wing. That guy so, like, is an even less objective source than some random journalist. Ob- obviously. Yeah. But in the same way as like Adam McKay's not an objective source. So I think you but can't... But he has less you stakes in it. He has huge stakes in it. He spent, he spent millions of dollars and years of his life making this movie where he's trying to convince you of this point and convince yeah, you that Dick Cheney's a piece of shit. Yeah, but this guy was in the situation. Like he's he's uh, uh, an employee in this in the circumstances you, but I think, less removed than Adam McKay is. I think that in terms of the stakes they have in the situation, they're both equally as biased in terms of the fact that like this guy I don't hasn't, think they hasn't are had this job in the, in, the, in the Bush White House for like 10 years, right? Yeah, but he could still he, be working He's got no White skin House. in the game anymore. How do you know that? My point is, not, none of them are any more or less have any more think, or less big significant reason Adam to be McKay biased. Has a huge incentive to be objective, yeah, whilst taking a certain artistic perspective. Well, Whereas that employee has almost no reason to be objective, and in fact was working in a Republican administration, which means that they probably voted that way. Sure, I would say, yeah. So that that's even less objective. I would say he's far less removed than Adam McKay. Yeah, I mean, I I, so I would agree you with about you. In, equally biased. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I would agree with you in the sense um, that Adam McKay definitely has a motivation to be objective, and that he's trying to present this film that he said is true. So mm. if he makes any mistakes, people are going to zero in on it, especially right. in 2019. Um, but by the same degree, I think it'd be a bit naive to say, oh no, Adam Adam McKay is this bastion of scientific fact right. and everything he says in the film is definitely going to be 100% without bias because like, even the way it's edited yeah. is biased in the way it like keeps flashing back to his DUI night back when he was like even before he got into politics to like emphasize the fact that he's irresponsible and he's an alcoholic piece of shit like mm. that for example felt a bit on the nose a, a bit of an obvious way well, that it was showing like alcoholic doesn't mean they're a bad person it was like but, look yeah. at this guy being ir- like it cut back to that scene like two or three times mm. throughout the film showing the guy like drunkenly stumbling out of his car and abusing the cop and it was before he even got into politics and like sworn to his wife that he'll be a changed man or whatever and so even just little editing moments like that where the way a film is edited can change the way it tells a story I think is an interesting an interesting exercise in analysing the bias of a film I love this film I just think it's an interesting thing to look at because the film is so focused on telling this political story Mm in a way that's trying to convince you of a point. Yeah, I, I understand. But one thing that I wanted to bring up, so you didn't stay until the end of the credits. I no. luckily, because I barely ever do that, but yeah. I luckily did in this case, and there's actually a stinger at the end of this film. Oh, right. Um, so what is it? The stinger is, so uh, uh, the second thing that I want to say, I'll get back to the stinger in a sec, but yeah. one thing that's really interesting about this movie is that it, it will spark debate, and it will spark debate both about its topic and also in the way that it's made. Because one thing that Adam McKay does in this movie a lot more than he does in The Big Short yeah. is he heavily uses metaphors 
and running motifs and he deviates chronologically a lot more than he does in um in the big short and the what he's doing with that is he's constructing a metaphorical persona of dick cheney as a as as a man as an animal and as a presidential vice presidential figure yeah um which he doesn't necessarily have to do as much in the big short it's a more two-dimensional portrayal of uh, of the people that are in the, the the film and it's a less aesthetic representation of those people so in terms of whether or not that's biased is a different question but he definitely yeah. is employing more artistic techniques to try and uh give you a different type of perspective on this kind of character. What I was going to say is, so harking back to the stinger. Sure. Yeah. And this is only really useful if you've seen the movie, but right, um, whatever. there's a, uh, they do some focus group testing in the, in the film where they're trying to figure out what resounds well with voter audiences yeah. when they're doing campaign stuff. As an and example so, of that, they talk about, it's these Republican think tanks that the film shows Dick Cheney having a bit of a, a bit of a hand in getting off the ground a bit. Um, a bit and, of a hand. Yeah, and they, they talk about, for Directly example, finances. Um, if they could convince Fox News to use the word climate change Con- instead of they global... they start Fox yeah, News. But yeah, climate change yeah. instead of global warming. The focus group in the room, it shows... The focus group agrees that climate change is a lot more of a pleasant term than, than global, global warming. warming. So yeah. they're trying to reduce the amount of alarmism and panic around global warming by calling it climate change. Just trying to... As an example. People. I can't yeah. think of another... There was another good example from Just evil, that sort of shit. evil shit. Like yeah. Orwellian rhetoric used to try and manipulate people against their best interests kind of shit. Uh, so, another, another good example is the death tax thing where they, the Republicans right. were trying to get rid of some tax, tax on inheritance. where if you inherit more than $2 million, at the moment, the way the law, the law worked, you would have that taxed. But... They were trying to get rid of that estate tax. So when you call it an estate tax, no one wants to get rid of it. And so they started convincing and using the term death tax. Yeah. And then suddenly it showed clips of like Whoopi Goldberg and all these like left wing type people being like, I don't want to get a death tax. Let's get rid of this death tax. Yeah. Um, Idiot celebrities. Clever ways to people. use language mm. in order to change the way people think. And so yeah. that was what this thing you were saying was focusing on, these yeah. focus groups. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. And uh, like, I just wanted to just imagine, it, just imagine an evil, uh, a focus group with like the most evil fucking purpose. Yeah. And that's that's what they're doing. But then at the end of the film, the stinger takes place in that room, in that focus group room. Right. But he changes it so they're not talking about those uh, ideas anymore. They're yeah. talking about the film. Right. And so um, what happens is there's this <laughs> there's this white old middle aged dude yeah. who's like, um, yeah, but this film is really biased and like the the way it's portraying it's got this liberal spin on everything. <laughs> and then there's this other young white dude across the room from him who's like yeah i mean it's not like they had to <laughs> it's not like they had to clear all of these facts through a legal team first or anything like that you know <laughs> obviously and the guy's like oh, of course you'd say that libtard and like they end up having a fight <laughs> right. over it and then um it has like maybe the worst executed thing in the film where it cuts away to this other these two people like these two women at the front of the room who just start asking about like some Kardashian-esque bullshit. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. just, it's trying to ham-fistedly show how people disengage from politics when you start arguing. But yeah. anyway, um, but I thought it was interesting that McKay was trying to circumvent that stuff and that I'm not sure that, like, did none of, so none of these articles mentioned that that what? you were reading, right? I, I, ha- I haven't properly read them. I'm just trying oh, to skim okay, right. them for inaccuracy. Well, I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if they reference that because if they don't, like, he's, he's even trying to head that off at the park. Yes. 
at the end of the film without compromising because yeah. the stinger is sort of a place where you can get away with doing stuff outside your movie so he is definitely trying to trying to inform people even to the last breath that like actually He's doing his best. this yeah. isn't quite as as, right. as biased as you might well, think. Something that I think, not having seen the stinger, something that I think is interesting there is the idea that he's saying he's cleared the facts. It's like, mm. yeah, but it's not that you, a film can be biased whilst still being 100% factual. Obviously, you, know? you can like, you can other things. You can show 20 bad things a guy has done. Right. Or say, oh, one of the reasons, except one of the reasons why he chose to invade Iraq was this specific reason. Mm. And then breeze past it. Right. And just the way in which you present, in the way in which you present choose to present negative things or positive things and choose to present a character's actions. I'm aware of the yeah, ways exa- that bias can Exactly. Be yeah. All I'm, I'm sure all I mean is, yeah. yeah, so all I mean is I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> necessarily the most like ironclad defense of the film. I love this film by the way. No, I but, thought it was yeah. a fantastic really so, interesting look. We haven't really talked very much that about it. That was the next thing I was going to get onto. Yeah. It's like people are probably if you haven't seen what it What is this film? You'll be absolutely mystified, yeah, right. but um, if you have seen it then I think that will have resounded yeah. reasonably well. So do you want to introduce the, the film basically then and what, yeah, what it's yeah, actually yeah. doing? Okay, so Christian Bale plays Dick Cheney, who was, as we said a little earlier, vice president under the Bush administration, so around that kind of time. Bush Jr. Yes, that's, yeah, so the second Bush administration. Yep. He was uh, in politics for quite a while before that. He actually was in, he came in while Nixon was president. Um, Started as like an intern, worked his way up the ranks. And then kind of went to the private sector, as a lot of yeah. Republicans do, and came back. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, was shown uh, to be extremely ambitious, and um, the way that the film, the, kind of the bottom line of the film, is that um, Dick Cheney came in, looked at the way that things were, and changed the way that the political structures worked to attempt to be able to have far more influence than. Yeah. Uh, anyone in the positions that he occupied ever had before. And it's really intense, and uh, to the to the point where um, you know we're we're approaching these people wanting to be able to be kings, basically, and yeah. and have no uh, no obstruction it, in their political ambitions. It so, talks, for example, about having interpretations of the constitution that give you this ultimate executive power. Yeah. So the logic behind that is like, if the president does something because he's not part of any of the sitting houses or any of the um so he's not part of the senate or the the house or whatever it must be legal it has to be legal because he's the he's above the authority of anything that decides whether or not something is legal so yeah. if the president does it, it 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 doesn't matter if it's ruled by a court to be illegal because the court sits below the president and the president must inherently overrule that which yeah. is obviously a really bad interpretation of that because even if well, it's it a could really be powerful interpreted, interpretation <laughs> even if it could be interpreted that way giving one individual that power is is just not a good idea. Like, yeah. it's never a good idea. It's never <laughs> been. We've it's it's we've shown throughout history that giving an individual that power is not a good thing. Yeah, and that's why we kind of moved away from it, right? So, yeah, I think as the like, great philosopher Kanye West once said, "Oh man, no um, one man." I, yeah. <laughs> great philosopher is is also a fun fun phrase to chuck in there. Um, but it, it, so he then came in. So that was that he spent a lot of time looking into the legality of that, and yeah. then, and then pursued that again once he had the opportunity to become vice president yeah. to kind of sit there. And the way that... So uh, he, he comes in under Steve Carell playing Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who was, I think, not the Secretary of Defense at that time, but under uh, the second Bush administration became Secretary of Defense and one of the um, key players in the war in Iraq, which is 
a pretty significant role to occupy. So yeah. there's kind of a, a, a pairing there that comes through. Um, I'm running through the major characters. Yeah. So you've got yeah Dick Cheney, Christian Bale. His wife is Lynn Cheney, played by Amy Adams, who is absolutely fantastic oh, she's in this amazing. film. Yeah. Just incredible. I would say equally as good as, as Christian Bale's performance. Yeah. Um, she plays... I don't know. They have a, a strange relationship where... Like, because he, he is portrayed as kind of this fuck up college student early in the film. Yeah. And, um, he gets which, done for say, several it DUIs. Keeps back to whether or not that's trying to demonize his character and show that he consistently has poor judgment, or whether or not that's trying to, uh, illustrate that he always has that era and that epoch of his life in the back of his head yeah. and is re- refusing to ever fall that far again. I, I don't well, know. It, That's it can do both things. I think it's, Absolutely. It's, it shows that it's one of the main turning points for his character and it right. sort of strengthens his resolve to be a better man. Because Lynn Cheney says... Like, like, I'm going to leave you if you keep doing this shit. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's pretty... The way that that scene goes down is, is, is yeah. very good. And he says, so, like, I'll never disappoint you again. And the film shows him, like, absolutely living up to that promise. Mm. <laughs> so halfway through... About halfway through the film, one of the biggest uh, shocks that I got through this whole thing, and there were a bunch, yeah. um, was George H.W. Bush's character, uh, who is played by someone that I don't remember, is talking to um, Dick Cheney at a party. So George H.W. Bush, yeah. famously father of George W. Bush. Yeah. And you see this guy in the background like knocking over drinks carts and being drunk and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Sam Rockwell, yeah. who Adam McKay... I think has worked with before, maybe. I think so. Or yeah, yeah I, uh, I don't remember. Maybe not. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, he was in three billboards as the bad cop, basically. Yeah. So Sam Rockwell, um, who I wouldn't have picked as my top, like he wouldn't have been in the top fifty actors. I would have <laughs> guessed would play George W. Bush. Yeah. But he does a fantastic job of that. Yeah, he's great. Again, uh, like Donald Rumsfeld, a lot of the characters are played really dumb. I mean, George. W. Bush, obviously, in the public eye, said a lot of dumb shit. But, like, a lot of the characters are played really cartoony and hammy and dumb. Yeah, and he does a good job of that. It's a comedy movie, ultimately. There's so a lot of... He like, does a good job of that. You know, the more that... These are such difficult times to extract any yeah. any information out of. Yeah. Um, so, I think that they have had to sort of characterize people based on on what happened. And, and Rockwell is actually... Or George W. Bush is actually portrayed in a way that's quite empathizable, where yeah. his father is very strongly pushing for him to be in politics. And he um, initially is, is, you know, thinks, like, I'm not very good at this, but then keeps being pushed and keeps being pushed, and people keep placing opportunities in his lap, and he keeps yeah. thinking, like, all right, um, maybe I will, I'll, I'll be okay with this. And then Dick Cheney comes along, and the, uh, whether or not this is true to life, I kind of don't give a yeah. shit. Um, Dick Cheney comes in and uh, George W. Bush feels completely out of his depth. He has no experience. That's a weakness in his campaign. Yeah. And uh, Dick Cheney comes in and George Bush wants him to be his vice president. And historically, the vice president has always been a very ceremonial role. He basically acts as a representative of the president. Like a symbolic figurehead position. Very symbolic. Yeah. So he'll go and do ribbon cuttings when the president is busy yeah. doing the actual shit. And so Christian and Bale's like, why would, why would I why want would that I position? That I've had all these other great positions of power and the CEO of a big oil company. Right. If I wanted to be your VP, I would want to be able to have these but kinds he doesn't of, say that yeah. so he's I mean eventually he does but initially yeah. his response is like no th- I don't need that yeah. thanks and then he starts to think about it and he sees the way that um, that George W. Bush is uh, kind of being pressured into this and doesn't isn't experienced doesn't really know what's going on doesn't know what to watch out for <laughs> and so he ends up having this second meeting with him where he says 
um, uh, hey, just you can take care of all of the cool stuff yeah. and I'll do the hard work, which yeah. what he actually means is I will have all of the decision-making ability. Yeah. He's like, and how about I take care of defense and foreign policy? He's basically and, swapping yeah. the roles of president <laughs> and vice president where like the president becomes a symbolic role. Yeah, I don't know enough about it, but that's the way it's which, shown in the which, film. Yeah, yeah, which I think actually is probably something that might even have continued on today where the president is still more of a populist symbolic role. I mean, you'd want to hope so, than, <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, almost no, because it's almost worse if they're not in the public eye yeah. to be scrutinized. But anyway, um, so yeah, the, that that sort of sets up the last, maybe the, the second half or last third of the film is yeah. Cheney in the Bush administration doing whatever he wants. Yeah, so it, then, the film kind of shows his rise to power, which is really alarming mm-hmm. and really interesting and really attaches you emotionally to a whole bunch of these characters. Yep. And yeah, then it shows you like the Machiavellian shit he does when he's finally at the top of the food right. chain. And the, one of the really interesting things, and as I said, this is actually kind of a surprisingly difficult film to discuss yeah. because it does, uh, it, it, it's very disrupted chronologically, as I said. There's a lot of characters that, um, as we've talked about, break the fourth wall or don't quite function 100% as a fictional character or whatever. Yeah. So... Um, there's a lot of things that I want to bring up, but they only make sense in context. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I'll 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 discuss quickly is like this this metaphor that's used throughout the whole film of Dick Cheney as a hunter, and he is frequently portrayed as fishing. Um, so he's like you know, he's dressed up fully in waders and he's going out into a river and fishing I, with with lures. His Secret Service code name is Angler. Right. <laughs> and so he is like even. Sometimes it's more over, like, during the conversation that he's having with, um, uh, the second one that he's having with George W. Bush, where he goes, he goes you gotta, back. You gotta hunt down what you want, shoot him in the back. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> and he's talking about stuff like, um, as he's setting up, as he's setting up the context in this conversation with George Bush, it's cutting back to him tying knots in a fishing line and, like, setting up the rod. Yeah. And then... Uh, attaching the lure on the end of it and he'll say something yeah. like, I'll take care of all the hard stuff and that's him like casting <laughs> and then it's like, and you can just be the people's president yeah. or whatever and that's like, and then you see George Bush thinking about it and there's a fish swimming closer to the lure and it's it's quite overt. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more subtle at points where yeah. um, he also goes uh, shooting for birds and like there was this incident where he shot a person <laughs> at a point when during his White House career he was seeing what he could get away with. And right. so I think it's Adam McKay saying, In this accident, I wonder if he was seeing what he could get away with, which has actually <laughs> been echoed in the rhetoric of Trump when he talked about saying I could shoot someone on Fifth Street and I, I yeah. would still be voted in. So that's an interesting parallel there. But Absolutely. He um yeah, he uh is portrayed as this Predator, just constantly predatorial. Um, it's established in the opening sequence of the film when he's in the bunker room uh, amid 9/11, yeah. and um, he. It's sort of there's this narrative um, again. Uh, sorry, narration by uh, Jesse Plemons saying, "In the midst of all of this chaos and confusion, when no one knew what to do, yeah. no one knew what was going on. Right, it's in the Situation Room, like five minutes after 9/11 has just happened, yeah, so and everyone's." Genuinely to in between to the two planes, yeah. while the Pentagon's also been hit, and he, uh, it's it's Plemons is narrating, and it sort of freeze frames and focuses in on on um, Christian Bale, and and Plemons says like, so in the midst of of that um, that turmoil and all of that confusion, 
Cheney saw something that no one else in that room saw, which was an opportunity. Yeah. And that's the that's the undercurrent of the whole rest of the film is that he is a he is a predator and he is an opportunist. And then so he starts giving orders there and he starts right. giving orders and saying, You have authorization to shoot any planes you see that you want to and like you have my presidential authority. And someone's and says, basically like, isn't that a presidential thing? And he just says like, yeah, it is. Anyway. Yeah. And it, he just, it, in that moment, no one confronts him about it. And it just sets this precedent for him to basically, yeah. that's that's when he realizes that he has, he is the president, yeah. basically. I think we can edge closer to spoiler chat. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah, before sure. we head, head into that and we lose people for five minutes, I think it's worth saying as a kind of, almost like a wrap up. I think this film, it was really funny. I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, it uh, the points yes. where it needed to be funny, it was funny. Yeah, absolutely. It was Adam really great gripping and interesting. If you watch the big short and like that, it makes something that seems like a very dry topic very interesting and engaging and mm. shows you why you should give a shit about it. I don't think that You it's, should care about yeah. who Dick Cheney was. Despite what I was saying, I don't think it paints... It's, I don't think it's a film that really feels when you're watching it as like a fucking get my message down your throat no, kind of doesn't. thing. It's it, a brilliant character portrayal. Really good. Um... The film's Quick style is really... Christian Bale for putting on like 30, oh, yeah. 40 kilos for this uh, role or something. He actually I think, it was like tw- I think 27, the... he gained 27 kilos right, for the part. So, yeah. yeah he, Ridiculous. He uh, it does his usual trick of becoming the character. Yeah. But what's interesting about this one is obviously Dick Cheney wouldn't have talked to anyone on this film. So no, absolutely not. So he had to do all of his learning not by his usual method of going and talking to the person being around them, yeah. but by observing and watching footage interviews, or whatever. Imagine, yeah. yeah, so interesting... Yeah. Interesting little deviation from his normal thing that I think comes off extremely well. Christian Bale's fantastic. Always a brilliant actor. One of those people yeah. who sort of lose you lose them in the role. Embeds himself um, in, in that character. The writing's really great. Yep, fantastic. one of the best written films I've seen this year. The editing, like I said before, is really well edited mm. in the sense that it has a purpose and it achieves it brilliantly. The way it cuts between things and does what you're describing for the hunting metaphors, for example, is really good. Right. A lot of the ways in which it uses stock footage. Where like you're like, how would you have thought to add half a second of that stock footage there at that moment? Yeah. Incredible! Like the way in which it's just such an he inspired. He does that in Big Short as well. Yeah, it's really good. It's just a thing that he's he really understands how to capture a certain zeitgeist. Yeah. at a particular moment in time. It's so very good. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, unlike it was one of my best films of this year. Yeah, for sure. But also, I, as I said to you, I came out of the cinema with my jaw hurting because <laughs> I had clenched it in anger for so long. That doesn't sound and like I you. Felt furious yeah. at what what the state of things were and what these people are allowed to get away with yeah. just these inhuman ghouls yeah exactly um, that yeah so uh, i yeah. think that a lot of the fun or interesting part of this movie is discovering a lot of the stuff that you might not know about Dick Cheney. Absolutely. And yeah. so I think if you don't want any spoilers, we might, I'll do, I'll do the thing with time codes again, have a look in the description of this podcast. Um, we're probably going to spend the next sort of five to ten minutes talking about some spoilers mm. about Vice that I think the film would be less satisfying if you knew. Right. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, for Ready? sure. See you later. All right. Okay, so I think one of the welcome interesting... Back. Welcome back. One of the interesting things in this little sealed section about Vice, about uh, the Dick Cheney machinations in the last half of the film is the way it talks about the Iraq War. Yeah. Um, so as a quick summary of that, um, right after 9-11, they were trying to work out who it is that did 9-11 and worked out, oh, Sam bin Laden, here are all these terrorists we found, Al-Qaeda. And the CIA and has a different perspective to the FBI who has a different perspective to the yeah. Pentagon or whatever. And so the, the consensus generally is Al-Qaeda's in Afghanistan. We know they're in Afghanistan. Yep. Let's go to Afghanistan. And... And Dick- we also have really good reason to believe Al-Qaeda did this. Yeah. yeah. Dick Cheney is like, yeah, but 
Iraq has loads of oil. Yeah. Look at all this oil. He's just come back from being the CEO of a big oil company for like 10 years. Mm. And so he then looks for any other terrorist type things that they, they can find and find this terrorist cell led by this dude. I don't remember his name. Um, way up in the north of Iraq. And they're like, right, well, let's say that this guy has ties to big terrorist organizations mm. and to Al-Qaeda. And the fact that he's still there and the Iraqi government hasn't done anything about it means the Iraqi government is supporting this shit. We're going to invade Iraq. And the Iraqi government at that point in time yeah. being Saddam Hussein. And that's when they, they cut to, for example, um, focus groups that look at people being confused about why the Iraq war is even happening and why are we invading Iraq? Isn't Al-Qaeda the one responsible for this? Yeah. And it sort of shows... Them, them invading Iraq really just because they wanted to get all these backroom deals and big grab. oil companies yeah. to get the oil in Iraq. And then it shows, for example, the way all the knock-on effects that that has. Mm. And so this random dude who they blamed as being a, a member of ISIS... Who was wasn't radicalized Osama bin Laden, at the time. Who was radicalized at the time. Yeah. Because he's being shown on the news all the time and they go and make a speech at the UN about this guy and how this guy's probably one of the guys that was responsible for 9-11 yeah. and he's he's an Al-Qaeda who actually was kind of like a nothing terrorist yeah, he was, guy no, he, he had a couple Iraq. of followers in, in a little group. Like he gained fame and notoriety in Iraq because of him being mentioned on the news in a mm. UN broadcast all the time and that guy went on to start ISIS. Yeah. And so the film shows how it's like, right, well, Dick Cheney is then responsible for all the shit that happened with the Iraq war. He's responsible for ISIS. Mm. He's responsible for um, abolishing all sorts of laws that required news organizations to be fair and balanced, right. which led to the founding of Fox News, who, who were then supported by, who were then very supportive of Republicans and said all this Republican doctrine shit that they organized and figured out in focus groups. And so there's a lot of alarming shit that sort of hits you again and again and again towards the end of the right. movie, which is where Andrew's teeth start to hurt. Um, oh, just, where it yeah. shows you all the horrific shit that Dick Cheney and his uh, organization of people were responsible and for. Just a disgusting lack of consideration for all of the implications of the decision that's that they're making. Like, yeah. They're so divorced from any kind of impact that this will have. And yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's it's horrifying. So a lot of this film, just like the big short, is rooted in some pretty complex political machinations. So I think we might have like skimmed over a couple of the, yeah. the wartime history things and there, but a lot the film of these does articles, a really great job of explaining yeah. it. And a lot of these articles do say it simplifies shit and jumps over stuff. Obviously, for example, before 9-11, the US was involved in a whole bunch of geopolitical shit and wars mm. and all sorts of things that Which I imagine... Which is where all of those memes of George Bush yeah. did 9-11 come from. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine they would have had a great effect on the politi geopolitical situations that led to a lot of the stuff hugely. they talk about in this yeah, film. Hugely. So, I mean, people say that, like, <laughs> I've seen a lot of reviews brand this is like Adam McKay's monster movie. It's absolutely really alarming though. It's a really ter terrifying film that I think is worth so watching. So one other artistic thing in our spoiled section, in our sealer section. Yeah. Do you want to talk about who the heart? Yeah. Yeah, who Jesse Plemons plays? Okay, so the narrator Jesse Plemons is uh kind of slowly revealed to be this uh so he's a citizen of America who's initially just talking to you and then halfway through the film actually gets deployed yeah. to Iraq. So you see him um, explaining certain things about why. Then, Narrating the story while he's in the war and all that. Yeah, thing. and so he, at a point, but what's really interesting about it that they do is, initially he seems kind of omniscient, so he knows yeah. everything about what's going on in the in the administration and is, is bringing you along with him. Yeah. And then when he's in Iraq, 
the more detail starts to become fuzzy in the White House, yeah. the, mo- the less he starts to know about what he's doing there and why. So he ends up, like one of the things that they do ha- about halfway through the movie is that he has this handheld video and he's like, he's in Afghanistan and he's like, so there's a bunch of us being shipped over to Iraq and I'm not really sure why and they're not really telling us much. So I hope everything's okay. Yeah. But see ya. Yeah. And then the the rest of the Iraq war is played out in the film and then he comes back and um after he comes back he continues to narrate things about like the internal goings on of of the White House and Dick Cheney's character and then towards quite close to the end of the film the other thing that I wanted to bring up which is linked is that uh there's this constant metaphor of Dick Cheney's heart and he has to go to the hospital several times because he's having heart he attacks. He has like three heart attacks he's getting over fatter the course and of his fatter. Thing. So he's he's morbidly obese and he has uh several huge heart attacks while uh while he's in office before and after he becomes vice <laughs> president. The boy where it's always the joke, like they'll be sitting around at the family table having a discussion and he'll be like, oh, and it, he I starts think I need like to go to the hospital <laughs> and they're like, Oh dick. Yeah, he starts flexing his <laughs> hand and he's like, Oh, sorry about this guys. I think we better go to hospital. <laughs> yeah. and everyone's just like Oh, now here we go again. It's not quite that cheesy, but, <laughs> yeah, but almost. Yeah. Um, and so, like by the third occurrence, his, his sort of last heart attack, it's revealed that like he needs a new heart, and yeah. there's no donors. Yeah. And um, Jesse Plemons is narrating all of this, and the the final bit where he's well, if you're listening to this spoilers, hopefully yeah. you've seen it, but um, he's getting dressed to go for a run, starts going for a run while he's talking to you and then is hit by a car and becomes... Like mid-sentence. Mid-sentence. It becomes the donor of Cheney's heart. Yeah. Um, and then is given some posthumous lines where he says, like, interestingly, um, and I thought this was fucking great. Yeah. Cheney doesn't refer to it as my heart. He refers to it as his new heart. Yeah. Which <laughs> is, like, this me- metaphor, I think, for how he... How he acquires things or positions or people... And doesn't view them as what they used to be. Yeah. Only views them as how his can, new things. And how they can benefit him and all yeah, that. It's yeah, it's like all objects around him are tools that he is able to use. Yeah, anyway, and it's a so, real like Darth Vader moment towards the end of the movie. Right, where you're like, and he's oh. just like, and it, it gives him this sense of immortality, right? Yeah, where he's he's by rights should be dead. Yeah, and in the nick of time was saved, was fine, and is genuinely still alive today, which he is. Yeah. Um, and I, that was the worst part to me <laughs> was was how it managed to and possibly the least objective I think was yeah. how well, it yeah, portrayed. Well, there's literally a moment after the surgery where Dick Cheney's pulsating heart that's like the the bad the shitty one is just sitting on the table just still like beating, still I beating still yeah. beating. So Dick Cheney has no heart. Yeah. Like, oh. So I, I mean, to an extent, um, I, I think that should have been really hammy, but yeah. actually, I I was I was fully fully on board with it. Um, yeah. I, I really liked that. And I liked that it wasn't something brought in right at the end, that it was Jesse Plemons' character consistently throughout, that yeah. this metaphor of his heart was there throughout, and then by the end, they, they sync up. Yeah. And it sort of shows how the final act of Cheney keeping himself afloat and alive was literally r- like ripping the heart out of an American citizen. A veteran at, of his war. At their expense, who <laughs> yeah. was a veteran. and Yeah, exactly. So I think there's actually a lot... Uh, symbolically that goes on in this film which I think was kind of it was paraded around as McKay sort of thinking that he's cleverer than he is but I actually think this was pretty genius in the I way think it was pretty it, clever it was yeah. put together and so. I think this is an example going back to my best of thing about 
how a movie conveys a political message mm. in a way that doesn't seem to shove it down your throat. On the right. surface, it does, but like through all the editing and the way he's written the story to go together and the way he depicts events very brilliantly, in my opinion. I agree. Conveys Adam McKay's message that doesn't like stop and be like, all right, here's what I think, here's why I think Al Gore's a piece of shit. It like shows you. Mm. And the whole movie, very, I think, it's, I don't know, I was going to say it's subtle, but a lot of it, it's, it's, like, it's obviously like this big film about Al Gore, but in its own way, it's yeah, subtle in the it way it subtle. picks and edits and does its little metaphorical things, mm. <laughs> all, in, all in metaphors. I think this is a very, a brilliant example of a sort, the sort of film I watched and I enjoyed watching it and got a message out of it without rolling my eyes and being like, okay, fine, whatever. So you feel like it didn't have to sacrifice its own form to be political? No, exactly. Right. I think the message very complimented it brilliantly. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, films like Black Klansman and maybe, I mean, sorry to bother you, it's harder to judge because it's a satire and satires are often inherently like that. But I think this film, compared with all three of those films that I've seen recently that have a big political message, I think this film has done it most effectively. Right. Yeah, um, I think we're we're well and truly back from our spoilers, our sealed section. Yeah, I think, yeah, by yeah now. for sure. Oh, now, so welcome, <laughs> welcome back. Hi. Um, uh, as a as a little wrap up, yeah. Have you got a better than worse than for Vice? I I, I can't put this better than or worse than the Big Short. Um, yeah, I think that it's definitely on par with the Big Short. The yeah, Big I think absolutely it was very brilliant. very similar. In terms of a in terms of a worse than, I actually don't know who's doing a better job of this at the moment. Yeah, and and I I don't think I've ever seen. Um, so I mean, like, if you look at if you want to go like fictionalized biopic, I reckon this was better than Ray, as an example of a film yeah. that we've covered before. I suppose it is a biopic. That yeah, was sure. supposed to be more documentative, but I think probably had almost as much fiction in it as this did. Yeah, and had to rely as much on inference. Yeah. Um. So like, yeah, I I, I don't know. I I think this is. I enjoy this a lot more than Ray. I think it's. I I really like that it has a lot of teeth on it. Yeah. About the subject matter that it's talking about, but I would place it equal with The Big Short for films that like I I've just loved and that have made me angry in a good way yeah. and gotten me politically motivated. I, I think I think in terms of it yeah. was worse than Sorry to Bother You, but not yeah. fucking by much. Like, I think it was it better was, than in my opinion. It was better than Sorry to Bother right. You. I think in in the certain little nuanced way that I like messages to be delivered in films, mm. I found myself rolling my eyes a bit at Sorry to Bother You in a way that I wasn't doing for Vice. Mm. And I really enjoyed the way it did it. It tells a great story. Right. Um, and teaches you along the way in a way that makes it interesting, kind of like how John Oliver stuff does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that rounds up our chat about Vice then. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. Moving on to uh, eighth, eighth grade, grade now. It's going to be quite another quite a long episode. Yeah, we'll just have to have to get rid of some stuff, yeah. but that's fine. All right. Moving on to eighth grade now. Eighth grade's a film we just saw the other day. It's brilliant. It's been out for a little while in the US and has now finally come out in Australia. I've been looking mm. forward to it for a while. Written and directed by. As- Tw- uh, yeah, 20, 2018, so yeah. within the last 12 months. Yeah, written and directed uh, by Bo stand-up comedian Burnham. Bo Burnham. I, well, was... I always get confused with Bill Burr. <laughs> Bill Burr is just an annoying Bill Burr, Burr. Oh, I, Bill Burr is an excellent example yeah. of a stand-up comedian who I, I don't agree with most of the shit he says, yeah. but he is so funny he's the good way at he delivery. says it. Yeah, he's just Man, a like, fucking asshole with I watch, terrible opinions. Yeah, like I watch some like best of... Um, well, he's, he doesn't do this, but he's the sort of stand-up that does like, my fucking wife kind of stand-up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone's a pussy nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, but like, got any skin on him anymore. Uh, he has I a can't lot, even use yeah. racist words <laughs> yeah yeah not bill burr bo burnham <laughs> bo burnham um yeah who i have actually not seen any stand-up of and his stand-up's the best i'm gonna go in it's on so funny because i feel like i've seen maybe clips and he's i've liked it really smart yeah and really there's well a spoken. bunch of like <laughs> there's a bunch of white stand-up comedians of about this age 
male stand-ups that I have aggregated in my head to be one person. <laughs> even Daniel Sloss... Even crossing generation that, bounds. Crossing and... nationalities, where yeah. even Daniel Sloss is, is in this category in my head where I'm just like, which one is that again? Like, I have to go through and just be like, which white dude is this? Yeah, anyway. yeah right. So... um. I imagine people have that about me. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a way of introduction to this film, I was watching a few Q&As um, recently with by Burnham and interviews and all that, where right. he was talking about how he sort of struggles with his own anxiety and he um, wasn't necessarily a very quiet person in the way that the character in this film is, very shy, but like he struggled with his own anxiety and spoke a lot on stage in recent stand-up tours yeah. in the last few years where he was like... Um, Talking about the huge anxiety he feels as a 24-year-old stand-up, constantly having to voice his opinions on a stage in front of hundreds of people. Right. And talking about how... I was wondering how old he is. 24. So he's, like, he's 26 yeah. to 28. He's 26 when he directed the film. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Because um, I remember he said... But he he was, was 24 I mean, when he was doing this stuff. When he was... Yeah. The, the experiences he was having, he was about 24 when he was having this stand-up, but he was feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety. Right. And... Um, yeah, wanted to maybe do a film about that and about his own experience. And but he said, like, oh, that, that would be the that'd be you know I wouldn't get anyone to go see that. It would be the sort of film no. that only other twenty four year old comedians could possibly relate to. And he was talking about that on stage and said he got approached by a lot of like, you know, thirteen to fourteen year old girls who were saying, I know how you feel. I feel exactly the same way, and I'm about my anxiety about being in front of you know, a class because uh, of social media. And he was saying, like, oh, young right. people, these 13 to 14-year-old, you know, boys and girls, are constantly in front of hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, and have to tailor their own personal image right. every day on social media because it's become such a big part of our lives. Mm. And so that's kind of what 8th Grade is about. It tells the story of the anxiety and struggles and kind of coming-of-age type things that this young girl, Kayla, Struggles with growing up as a 13-year-old girl going to a public school in America. So, played by Elsie Fisher, who I yeah. think probably this this must be like her biggest thing so It is, far, yeah. Right? She, um, yeah. She like... <laughs> she auditioned for this? Yeah. Was, this is her first big big performance. Oh, okay. So, she plays some characters in like uh, fucking Despicable Me. Whatever and, it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, she plays one of the kids in Despicable Me. Okay. So, she's done some voice acting that yeah. got pretty big. But, but like, is... I think she's done like, you know, drama classes at school or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, she was born in two thousand and three. Yeah, holy fuck. She's like she I think so she was she's, literally she's about fifteen. She's literally about like the right age. Thirteen or fourteen when this film was produced. I think this film does a really good job of depicting shyness and social anxiety yeah. in a way that is very relatable. Um Bo Burnham was talking about when he was casting the film and he must have seen, you know, loads and loads and loads of young young girls. Um a lot of the you know, theatre class type actresses that would come in. Be very bold. Um, were obviously outgoing type people. Yeah, yeah. And were sort of playing this shy character as like, Bo said, he, he, they sort of, you could tell they were confident people playing what playing a, shy a shy person would be, wanting yeah. to sort of sit there in the corner and not say anything. And he said that this actress, um, Elsie, Elsie Fisher. Fisher, did a great job of looking like the sort of quiet person who always wants to be saying things and is always afraid to. Right. Which is something that I think everyone can relate to to some degree. You've always been in like a social situation where like you want to be saying stuff and you always do. And he said that's what shyness is. No, no shy person wants to be shy and yeah. wants to be sitting in a corner with everyone thinking, oh, look at that Then you're not shy. Yeah. You're introverted or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the actress, starting as a way, because she's the main focus of this whole film, does yeah. such a fantastic job. Yeah, she's brilliant. Um, the film feels really honest. This couldn't have been done. Of, yeah. 
in the same way as Boyhood couldn't have been done like it was if the lead actor hadn't been the age that he was representing, yeah. she couldn't have been any older than she was and still come off as... Like, one thing that uh, we, we saw it with a friend of the show, Liam, and he's, he remarked on it uh, by saying, like, when do you see acne in films? Yeah. But she just... At, like at a lot of points if she was wearing any makeup you couldn't see it really because she just had a face full of teen acting she wasn't this like beautiful young Hollywood actress kid it was just like this is what someone looks like when they're that age yeah Yeah, she was the most realistic like normal kid that I've seen ever on screen I think other than maybe Boyhood which was doing the same thing yeah you know Um, yeah and and so the film's not really about much it's really just about her She's in middle. It's about her transition in, from yeah. middle to high school, which apparently which in the so US is uh, eighth grade is the end of middle school, ninth grade is the beginning of high school. A little earlier than college is yeah. in America. So in, it, sta- in it starts in like her last week of middle school. Right. Um, she gets this like box of like memories that she put all, that the school like time capsule time capsuled for her when she started middle school like two years ago. Yeah, <laughs> um, and she's you know like old like playbills yeah. and playbills and theater stubs on like a Justin Bieber CD or whatever. Um, and uh. It sort of shows her like coming to terms with the fact that she still feels that she hasn't changed very much in the last three years, and she doesn't have many friends, and she doesn't think she's very popular, and she's very outgoing in private. A whole part of the film is she does these video blogs online, giving advice about how to be confident, how to mm-hmm. make friends, and here's how to be. And but, and she's so confident and outgoing in the way she expresses herself on social media online, and then it's just the shyest, quietest, timid, timid person in real yeah. life. And, and I, it, it addresses this in the narrative, but yeah. like she's making videos as advice, which is all of, all that the people who are watching the videos see. But they're actually always inspired by experiences she just had, which she just learned lessons from. Yeah. So she's kind of feigning wisdom in a way where she's saying, "I I like to do this, or I like to be like this, or I like to whatever," as if it's this thing that she has as an undercurrent of a personality. But then it's actually just a imagine thing broadcasting that she's... your opinions online to very few people and feigning wisdom. Well, <laughs> she's trying to. Uh, we're not trying to act like we've yeah. seen these films forever. That you hit know, me right the feels when she was like, "I'm not getting very many views." <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. Um, yeah, it's 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 tough uh, for her. Yeah. And for us. <laughs> and for us. Um, Please subscribe to Beef Station. She's, uh, Tell your yeah, friends. I, I just thought it was a really interesting perspective. That, brilliant. Like, she's putting out these videos as if she's... It, it's, it was representative of her entire social media presence. Yeah. And I think a lot of people's entire social media presences where they, they uh, will implicitly state that they have constant factors in their lives when yeah. actually... That's probably, they're like trying to get started doing that thing. And their first step of getting started doing that thing is yeah. to say they always do that. Yeah. You know, so it's it's like this, it's already you're getting an inaccurate portrayal of that person, even yeah. if what they're saying kind of has some ground in reality. But and yeah. I think it was either Liam or you the other night that was saying it has one of the best portrayals, the most honest that portrayals of um, social media in a film. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the only decent ones in any film. Like, it's not kids. Bo was talking about how it drives him crazy when he sees a lot of kids in films, and it feels like either the kid is some fucking poet laureate that oddly expresses themselves right about the way a 40-year-old screenwriter might be able yeah, to. Funny, that. Or um, is just sitting in the corner being... Or one, or one of the kid actors was saying um, she hates watching films where the kid's just like, lol, Instagram, let's go watch Spongebob or whatever. Yeah. And It's gonna be lit. Yeah. Really interesting little little double-up comparison join between yeah. these two movies. So at a point in this in eighth grade, they, they've wheeled out a video projector into a classroom and there's this teacher doing a sex ed video. Yeah. And the video says, 
we'll explore some of the blah, 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 and vaginas or whatever. It's going to be lit in the stinger in yeah. uh, fucking Vice. Yeah. The way that when I said it was ham-fisted that a woman yeah. turns to another woman and says yeah. something about it, the thing that she says is like, did you see that other video that so the lit. other day? It was lit. Yeah, right. it was so just that, the most unconvincing line. Yeah. But so nothing in nothing in eighth grade feels unconvincing. It no, all feels like that's how people speak. That do that and like even, the yeah. president dab on oh, the president the, 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 the <laughs> princi- principal the principal dabs. That is right up there <laughs> with the best dabs I've ever seen on screen. He like walks out and he has to say something into this class and he's like, All right, I've got these awards to give out, voted by you, and then he does this like and just kind of like puts both his arms where a dab would go. <laughs> he, it's like yeah. he's been told to dab so many times before he can have the respect of the class that now he does it in his dab, own sir. way. Hey, sir, yeah. do a dab. Sir, do a dab. And he's just like heading do, it off of the past us, being like... Do a dab, the most 25-year-old people. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Dab on him, sir. But, but So then Bo is talking about how um, it was really important for him that these kids... He wanted to show that like these kids know how to express themselves and really think about the way people see them and they think about the world in quite a deep way that you don't often see in films. Right. But at the same time, they have this tremendous... Uh, ironically, they have this tremendous problem trying to express themselves. And he says it's like a... It's a, a very... a very Yeah. It's a very childish but also human struggle to have mm. when you're sort of learning how to express yourself and trying to work out how to get your thoughts... Which everyone, you know, they're quite deep, and everyone knows exactly what's going on in their own head, and trying to convey them and communicate with other people as you're all sort of growing up in this weird puberty and, kind of and in such community. an impersonal platform as social yeah. media, where you sort of you don't really, I mean, you can have conversations with people via like DMs or whatever, but yeah. but when you're putting yourself out on that platform, it's so constructed and thought yeah. out and and it shows artificial. it shows Kayla like taking a Snapchat like ten times taking, like, and putting a beauty filter photos, on and doing yeah. a makeup doing a makeup and then getting back in bed and be like just wake up like this lol. Um, yeah, I saw a couple like female journalists that were interviewing Bo saying that if they hadn't known it was written by him, they wouldn't have known it was written by a dude. I, I thought it, that it was incredible that they managed to, that he, that he and he, maybe he got advice from, yeah. maybe from Elsie Fisher, but like I know that uh, in the creation of Boyhood, Richard Linklater would talk to the uh, Ella Coltrane who played Mason, the main character, and yeah. he would every year meet with him before they started shooting. Like, and what do you want like, to do? What, what happened to you this year, man? Yeah. Like, what's been going on? So I don't know if Bo went, uh, went to Elsie Fisher and was just like, hey, what do you do in the morning? I mean, probably, but he said he did like a shitload of research for this as yeah, well. Yeah, like, um, it's, it's, uh, You couldn't not because it would be completely unconvincing. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's amazing, yeah. A, a lot of the writing, so there's like, uh, all of her YouTube videos where she talks about confidence and having friends and stuff, Bo said, the way he's written it, it's written like, um, so like, what I want to like talk to you today oh, is wow, about, um, scripted oh, like that. sorry, I'm reading off a piece of paper. Yeah. So like, yeah, he said, Holy shit. every single like and um and ah was exactly written like that. That's fucking And he shocking. said, he was lucky enough that Elsie uh, Fisher has some freaky photographic memory was able to remember it. <laughs> but, he, but he also said like, it's not like he wanted that exact arm and R and like in the right places. He said, um, if Elsie Fisher couldn't exactly get the line right, that was even better because that worked with his she whole... Would, she would um and ah the ums and ahs. Literally. So that would work with Whoa. his whole vibe of just trying to show that these kids have a tremendous amount of difficulty communicating expressing themselves. and expressing Holy themselves. Holy crap. Yeah. I would have bet a hundred dollars that that was improv right. if I'd had to bet one way or the and other and so then that scene in the food court Fuck, where it's that's like that's really cool yeah, and then that scene in the food court where it's like five 15 year olds just talking about shit 
that was improv. So right. that was where he said, why don't you have a discussion about, and he would like throw a topic yeah, out yeah, there yeah, and yeah. they would just talk about it. Right. Um, and he, he Fate said that picks. like- What? Fate <laughs> picks. <laughs> and, he, and he said that like, um, <laughs> foot fetish. And he said that like, oh, the, the kid actors, the interview with those kid actors where he, they said they really liked being able to do that and they really liked how honest it all came across as. And Bo said that when he was auditioning these kid actors to be like, um, that group of friends. So there's a, a group of Elsie is like a high buddied up with that, high schoolers. Yeah. And, and and she ends up being invited to hang out with these kids at the mall. Yeah. And so Bo said originally he realized it was his writer's bias that he thought like, oh, Elsie's going to be paired up with Michelle and she's going to be the leader of these kids. But then the, um, I don't remember their names, but one of the other kids um, was cast um, as one of the friends. And she was so strong and like magnetic as a personality. He was like, oh no, you're going to be the leader. And Elsie gets paired with someone who's just like a side piece in this friendship, yeah, group, okay, which works so even better within the context Elsie of the film. It, you're totally right. And that did come across. There was uh, one of the characters was really confident. Yeah. And, um, and Elsie's buddy just wasn't, wasn't so much. So that's cool that he's able to... I think that reflects like a really huge amount of introspection on yeah. Bo Burnham's part that was necessary for this film. Yeah. Because he really would have had to like... <laughs> challenge some some kind of I don't know unknowns or preconceptions or whatever to, to yeah. enter into this world and it just felt, makes it lends even more honesty to this film Fun, fun funny the pairing we've gone with this week right. where I feel like it's one of the least and one of the most honest films that we've seen so far yeah where, like, least honest is harsh but I know what you you know mean. what I mean like yeah. this film like um it really lends itself an air of honesty to sort of show like no the kid isn't the main character in the story the kid's this side character and she hates it like yeah um like she's voted most quiet at her school at right. the beginning of the and movie, and it's a nightmare for her. Yeah, and she she's crushed when she gets constantly voted trying. Most quiet. Yeah, she like she's constantly trying to work up the courage to like go to a party and actually talk to people, right. or like make any friends, mm. um, speak up in class, comp- speak to the cool people at school. And I think one of my favorite bits about this film is the way in which it depicts being popular in the eighth grade as the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Having people like you. Yeah. Know. And it's definitely something that... It's not even having people like you, actually. That's almost a different thing. Yeah. It's, it's, you're right. It's being popular. It's a different quality. Yeah. But not not even in like a high school musical kind of way. It really just was like... It would fixate on like little moments where like someone someone would make a dumb joke at, at a party that this kid, like the loud kid in the food court would make some dumb joke that he didn't think was very funny and then she would just, it would like focus on her like sort of like obviously overthinking it and thinking about this fucking dumb joke yeah. this guy made that he d- didn't mean anything by for so long. Which is a good way to lead into uh, w- one thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. L- linked into the representations of social media as well. We spend so much of this movie staring at Elsie Fisher or Kayla's face. Yeah. Just l- looking at her face and I think that um, we came out of the cinema talking about this that I think that does an, a really good job building empathy yeah. because instead of seeing a stimulus and us having an emotional <laughs> response to that, yeah. we see Kayla's emotional response to a stimulus. Yeah. Right. So often when she's scrolling on social media, we actually can't really see what's going on. Yeah. We're just looking at her looking at a screen. Or we'll get like her completely emotionless face scrolling through and like liking stuff just and typing like wall ha ha and like yeah. scroll yeah. Or, or sometimes for extended periods of time, not just looking showing at the phone. us what it is. Yeah. It's just we're watching her experience yeah. this thing. And that was and that actually does build a lot of empathy and yeah. it, it it I think it is intended somewhat to put us in the role of uh, Josh Hamilton's character who is Mark Day who he is her dad, her, her dad yeah. her dad um, as this kind of like observe uh, like an observer maybe a bit of a parent but just someone who's meant to care about this person 
but can't be such an involved participant in her life. Yeah. You know, we're often there respectfully of watching her experiences. Yeah. And like the way that the cinematography in this film reflects showing her, her intimate personal journey is, is really genius. Absolutely brilliant. You can study this film. There's one moment where I'm going to get on my film school bullshit here. Do it. But there's one moment where, um, she's looking up videos, uh, trying to learn how to do something sexual like most people would have done in their lives yeah. and uh like me last week <laughs> and um and uh her dad ends up like coming in and he knocks but she doesn't hear it because she's got headphones in and she throws her phone across the room because she's embarrassed <laughs> yeah, yeah. in like some dumb awkward thing and yeah so she ends up having this uncomfortable interaction with her dad like so much so many of them are and he's like all right good night and he goes and she goes and picks up her phone and it it is fucked. Like yeah. the, the screen is right in the middle. There's a huge spiderweb crack right yeah. out. And it's this extreme close up of the phone screen with what she was looking at on it right before she threw it away. And this absolutely destroyed surface. Yeah. When before that point in the film, we had just been looking at this clean screen, this clean interface. And I thought it was really interesting that um, she was so, she's so fixated on these digital relationships. Yeah that the thing that actually disrupts that interface is something that, it's like a real something that happens in the real interaction, yeah. right? When she actually throws a phone across the room. Yeah. And that's what ends up shattering the interface that she has with this digital, that is digital really way. And the way that it reflects that on screen is, is by obscuring the digital representation of yeah. the stuff with this huge cracked It's like a consequence of some sort of as, fractured uh, personal of relationship. Of a real life yeah. interaction with her dad. It's that, that this film was, I mean, I wrote down a bunch of yeah. them. I won't bore you with them, but like <laughs> this film is riddled with that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's really, really, really interesting a to watch. A lot of brilliant cinematography whereby Kayla and the dad like the are framing. framed as far as possible away from each other in the shot. Like mm. literally, Kayla will be lying in bed looking at her laptop the in the very left bottom the left corner and her dad is poking his head through the door on the very top right hand corner of the mm. screen to the With point where like if we were in any if we were in any bigger cinema we'd have been playing a fucking tennis match looking at these yeah. people which is re- yeah obviously like emphasizes the emotional distance between them the dad the relationship between the kid and the dad was really brilliant Beautiful. and I definitely there's a lot of stuff that I definitely related to mm. like even just the little the little things so where, like she'd have both headphones in and like he would say something and she'd pick out a headphone like what? Yeah. And put it back in and go, what? And she would put it back in a ridiculously small amount of time yeah. later. Yeah. I reckon- he would only be able to get like one or two words in. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just the dysfunctionality of their communication at first. Yeah. Definitely that sort of frustration you could see through the father's character where he was like making jokes and was thinking to himself like, man, this was funny eight months ago. Why is she not? Yeah. Um, what, what, what am I doing wrong now? Why can't I communicate with my fucking daughter anymore? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this was one of the most again, like authentic, which is a, a weird word, but this film just has authenticity to it. The relationship between her and her dad is just one of the most authentic, like, so he's a single father. And um, the just the way that he interacts with her is very believable. He makes a, a, a parenting faux pas where he, uh, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. Yeah. He drops her off at the mall and she's hanging out with her friends and then they, they kind of say like, hey, don't, look now but there's this fucking weird guy that's been like looking at us for ages and she turns around and it's her dad like, and he's been like watching her be with yeah. her friends and it's because like he obviously is worried about her which is a very understandable thing and he just goes about it in totally the wrong yeah. way he immediately apologizes and but you know that there's this trust that's been broken yeah. and 
Or th- and like, and there's a lot of scenes with like the dad just talking with Kayla and her not saying anything, or like just being like, "Shut up, go away, fuck you," like um, type type stuff. Yeah, but it really not, shows it's the fractured not, relationship. It's not just edgy. It's no. such, you can it, the the interactions are always that she is nervous and uncomfortable. Yeah, and unapologetically so. Yeah, and he is kind of doing his best, but also like sometimes needs stuff to get done or is just trying to help. Yeah, and like. She kind of she wants to be left alone, but needs something from him. But wants autonomy, but can't have it yet. And like, it's, it's like a really great. The scripting in this film is is genius. Like, yeah. What what? Uh, so we just referred to Adam McKay's construction of a film as genius. I would argue that like Adam McKay's film, film writing skills in portraying like a socio political event or a character. Yeah. Is is, th- this is equally genius at representing the the life of a 14-year-old on a day-to-day well, basis. Like, the way that he's just constructed this visual narrative of her, how she navigates the world yeah. on a moment-to-moment basis is f- absolutely genius. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Adam McKay's scripting is more like a fun Hollywood boisterous way of depicting this film mm. and the way you know it's a movie. It's a very movie-movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it feels very constructed. But it's good. But then eighth grade feels like you're watching like it's like a window into this like a real person's life. Right. And uh, so I was watching because uh, in during my research of other yeah. film stuff, and I guess like let's let's start tying this up. Yeah, Jesus um, Christ. But uh, we get a lot of slow zooms in this film. Yeah. And I was watching a video on on how slow zoom can be used and what it actually makes you feel. So a, a, a slow slow zoom, the way that slow zoom is used is is used is often to either uh, if if it's slowly zooming in usually it will flick back and forth between the subject of the zoom in and the character that's looking at it. And that's like them focusing in on something right. and like starting to become more intently observant of that. And that yeah. happens sometimes when she's uh, looking at a, a boy or like trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, or it's the audience focusing in on her slowly as she's watching something happen. Like she has a couple of tennis match conversations where she's listening to two people on either side of her and, and yeah. it will just be, the camera, us, zooming slowly in on her face, yeah, which builds focus on her. Or it's a slow zoom out, which can either show a character starting to take in their surrounding environment, where they start looking at a more wide range of things, and we're slowly experiencing more and more of that scene. Or it can show extreme alienation, where the scene around a character starts to dwarf them yeah. and make them feel very small and insignificant. Well, and there's a lot and of that in this, this film. This is used in almost every way in this yeah. film, which sounds like it should be tired, but really he's just chosen his moments extremely well Brilliant. to very subtly reflect this sense of... it's Because it's movement of the camera, yeah. but it's very, very subtle movement of the camera. The opening scene is of one of her videos, um, and it is we actually get a slow zoom out from her video, yeah. which is weird because it's, again, it's an inversion of what I was just talking about where it's us focusing on her, but it's zooming out, right? Yeah. So we slowly get more and more of her surroundings and we're slowly exposed to more than just her face, the way yeah. that she looks, her mannerisms and whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, y- yeah, I think it's just a really interesting use of, it's, it's illustrative of his use of camera techniques to... Uh, give the audience a certain sensation in this film, which is done very, very well consistently yeah. throughout. So yeah, um, de- definitely. I think it definitely the film is one one of the best little indie dramas I've seen right. in ages. It's this brilliant depiction of anxiety and childhood in a way that it's one of the first films kind of about coming of age childhood ch- type shit that doesn't feel like indie nonsense where the shins plays and the child and goes and by dances in totally the rain. Not uh, that that is just too divorced from that situation to uh, to really. 
understand yeah. it. Yeah. Like, you know how, like, I mean... Speaking example, of the yep. shins playing, quick note to <laughs> this film's soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Um, the way that music is used isn't just as backing music. It's yeah. actually used in conjunction with edits and cuts and stuff. Yeah. And it's very clever. Like, there's a certain song that plays whenever she looks at a certain person. <laughs> yeah. And um, and it's obviously like her internal sensation again, but it's just using another aspect of the film to give us this insight into her personal experience, which yeah, works really, really well. Yeah. Um, I think that it's, it's also really funny. The film is brilliant. So and it good. shows that it's been written by so a stand-up. Much. But it doesn't seem like... it's Again, importantly, it's not written like there's one kid that's stunningly witty. No. It's like... It's not punchlines. Yeah, it's like... It, the, Certain instances and situations are funny, or they're like cringe funny, or you'll. I often laughed at some stuff because some kid was doing something painfully awkward, and I recognized part of myself in that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep, yep. There's like Gabe is the character in the pool um, that, that like is like, do you want to see me do a handstand? And she's like, oh uh, yeah, fine. Watch yeah. me do a handstand. No, the current's not and right. He's like, no, I, c- yeah. I couldn't do it. There's too many people. Do you want to have a breathing contest? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, apparently that kid got the part because like the, um, uh, Bo sat that kid down uh, with. Elsie Fisher, right, and there's, he was like, "Oh, just just talk about whatever, just have a conversation, just oh, meet." Christ. Um, and <laughs> I think his name's Jack. Jack was like, "Oh, Elsie, so do, you, do you like tacos?" And she's like, oh, "Yeah, sure, yeah, I like tacos." And he goes, "Hard shell or soft?" And Bo's like, "Stop, you got the part." <laughs> Whoa, that's cool. Like, and then he was that's like, it. "Don't it's have done. any more conversation." Like, yeah. And then the first time they're properly met was during the scene. A lot of these kids, Is it the chicken nuggets scene. Oh no, it was like in class or the. Whatever oh, right. it was, like the first time, maybe the pool scene, whatever, whatever the first scene they have together was the very first time they ever oh, actually cool. met in person. And he said a lot of the characters he kept like that, the actors, the kid actors would meet for the first time on set. So I think Elsie, the first time that Elsie Fisher met all those kids in the food court scene, the five, it was during that food court scene. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and oh, then wow, that's really neat. He deliberately showed Elsie Fisher. He he read through the script like once with her and her dad. So here's all the content in the film. Here's so you have like an understanding of what right. sort of stuff's going on. Because the there's film. some there's some stuff that there's, gets, there's, gets, there's, gets, gets a bit dark. Some intense stuff. Some sexual stuff. In the in the US, this film about eighth graders. It's a very honest depiction of eighth grade life. Is rated R. Right, and it's because which is crazy. Just like how that bull that documentary, just like how that documentary about bullying in middle school was rated R yeah. as well. But it's like, but kids actually have to live this shit. Yeah, and and it's actually a good educational in in a way. It's a good educational text. But one of the things 100%. that it shows really interestingly is how from how young young women are predated upon. And I mentioned this yeah. to, to my partner who is a woman. Yeah. And she said like she she just it was like I, I was like yeah this film just shows how early young women start being predated and upon. She like, and she immediately, yeah. subconsciously was like, from when they're born. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, fuck. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, that came from a place where she's had to think about that a lot more than I've had to think about Absolutely, that. yeah. And this film is is so deep in on that that it doesn't even have to focus on it really hard. It's just doing slice of life moments and some of those moments which just become part of a young woman's growing up yeah. are them having to navigate being predated upon, yeah, and, and this learning how to defend themselves while also trying to figure out how to be independent, yeah. well, which like, is incredibly hard. Other weird shit like trying to tailor herself to look beautiful on social media, um, right? When everyone's doing that, yeah, and then like using filters that a company yeah, has made. The anxiety evolves around like going to a pool party and having her bathing suit or whatever, right. which is. <laughs> still terrifying for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she's a different body shape to a lot of people. And yeah, that really shows because we get another cinematography thing. Yeah, we get a lot of under 
like low shots looking up at Elsie and yeah. it's they're not flattering at all yeah. and that tends to be a very unflattering way to, to, to film someone and then it shows her looking at all her other classmates in a way that make them look beautiful right and, and so and like, like popular well, and especially fun. in the bathing suit scene it's yeah. like staring up and you can see like the bottom of her chin and she looks a little more overweight than she would if you filmed from level or above yeah. and like it's just choosing its moments really well. I think it's a really, really well-made film. And I think it's definitely yeah. worth going to see. I don't know how long it's going to be showing, but I hope I hope a little while because it's brilliant. Yeah, just like to bottom line sum it up, this is like the, I, I think the way that it represents the turbulence and the fragility of, of this this process of, of having to grow up is, is uh, yeah. phenomenal. It's the it's... first time that I've ever identified with a coming-of-age film. Right. Like, wow, okay. Did you see, you saw Boyhood. Yeah, but that still but felt like... That didn't grab a lot of people. It grabbed me, but yeah, I mean, it didn't grab a lot sure, of people. Sure, there were moments, but like a lot of it was like, oh, this is a beautiful arty film. Right. This didn't really feel like that. This felt yeah. like they were trying to make the most honest depiction of the kinds of emotions that children go through. Part in a way that, that like time scale, I think. I think parents would get a lot out of it as well, watching it and I told my identifying... Yeah, I think parents would identify with the way in which the dad has trouble behave, um, trouble talking, talking to his kid. But equally, I think that parents would probably get a lot out of seeing the sort of anxiety that the kid's going through. Because right. I think it's a very, very accurate... And not knowing what to do about that. It's yeah, just exactly. this insurmountable situation that you just have to endure. Yeah, and like yeah. you were saying, like Elsie wants help, but she doesn't want to ask for help. And she... Doesn't know how to ask for help. Yeah. yeah. All that sort of shit. I think it's definitely worth seeing. And I don't I don't, I don't have a better than... Or, we've sort of been off the better than or worse than train for a little while. I, I reckon really this is it. probably better than Boyhood, I think. Yeah. Which is big, a big fucking call. Boyhood, Actually, yeah. does, Boyhood does some things better... If you got me on a different day, I might say Boyhood was better, but Boyhood had a lot more behind it. Whereas, yeah. like, I, I feel like this uh, managed to do more with less in a way. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what was it? What was it like? Definitely better than I don't know um, any other movie that depicts teenagers, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Any. Yeah. It was the best depiction of teenagers in yeah. any film ever. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really, really, really um, good. I think that's probably going to be. I think it's probably all the time we've got for yeah, on this week's episode so. of Beach yeah. Station. We'll um we'll do some news for you next time. Yeah, we'll do a bit we'll of a loose. We'll do a bit of a loose one next week. Decent news situation. Next week yeah. we're going to be doing uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, mm. which is which we've uh, the both seen Netflix. <laughs> yeah, good with the net Netflix special um, by the Coen Brothers. By the Coen Brothers that we mentioned in our top ten of the year. Mm. Um, I think we've also both seen a couple other movies that one of us has seen it and the other hasn't. So we figured. Um, not necessarily films we might want to cover in, in depth on the podcast. No. We'll breeze through some of them as well. Just have a little beginning of your catch-up. Mm. Uh, well, we can forecast what they are, right? So we're doing Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. Do Roma. Yeah, we'll do Roma. Which I will watch at a point and give you an update on, but haven't had a chance to. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and then also <laughs> Bird Box. Yeah, and I, I also watch Holmes and Watson. Um, yeah, so we that, can talk that about that. Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, one Masterpiece, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, um, as always, you can email us if you'd like to get in contact with the show, beefstationpod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at beefstationpod. Facebook.com slash beefstationpod where we'll post all the uh, new episodes and links and things. Andrew's started a a little survey with all the films in it that we picked for top tens. I'd committed to talking about, yeah, plus a bunch. Uh, I'd committed to talking about that this week, but only 11 people have voted and I want to get a few more. So maybe we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. Get on it and vote. Get on it and vote. If you agreed with our top tens, let us know if there was any top any great films last year that you think we missed by all means let us know and we'll talk about it and apologies to Pat for leaving Roma off the list mm. nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> yeah. they don't even speak More English in it mate yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us I'm Oscar Andrew see you later